Amen. You may be seated. Once again, this week, if you have your Bible, will you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9? Or today's text is printed in um, your bulletin on page 10. <coughs> We've been noting the sequence of three offerings in a particular order. This is a worship service before Jesus. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, a sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat in the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar but the fat pieces of the oxen of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Once again, Lord, lead us through this text and change us through it. In Jesus we pray. Amen. It's been said many times, and as I get older, I think I appreciate more and more the wisdom of this. The best defense is what? A good offense. To me, one of the most tiresome features about North American Christianity is how defensive it is. You know, there's this man the ramparts mentality you hear among so many Christians now. We are, we are, we are just, it feels like we are continually in reaction to what, quote unquote, the enemy, real or perceived, is doing. Um... And, you know, that, that, can be, that can be dangerous for a lot of reasons, to constantly be, you know, looking around and sounding the alarm and sending out scouting reports and trying to figure out what, quote-unquote, the enemy at the gates is kind of doing and, you know, always being in response to that. Not, not only does that, as you know, and we can see it all over in our society, not only does that make you tend to see opposition only where there might actually be opportunities, 
not only does that kind of defensiveness tend to make you see demons where there's humanity, you know, people who are on the defensive, really, when they look out at what is out there and they're worried about, they can really only see two things. There are threats and there are targets, and that's all they can see. I watch this in marriage wars <laughs> when people are on the defensive. You know, they look at your spouse, and all they see is a threat or a target. But I think the worst thing about defensiveness is that there's just not a constructive plan. There's not an independent vision, aside from what is going on out there, you know, sort of the stuff in culture or whatever it might be that we're worried about. It's like independent of all that. Like if that didn't even exist, what would we be building? What would we be constructing? I just hear from a lot of Christians this, you you get the sense, you know, we hope to survive the siege, but I don't hear a lot about good blueprints. What's the constructive vision? So with that pastoral frustration, I decided to preach a series on worship, which I'm sure makes no sense (laughs) when you first hear it. But I'm pushing something here a little bit in this series. I want you guys to come to a real peace and joy in the fact that worship, this thing we do week by week, this is not defensive. We are not coming in here to shelter ourselves from that real world where all kinds of bad stuff is happening and, you know, all kinds of problems. We don't come in here to shelter and kind of escape from all of that and, you know, pray for the rapture and look for the lifeboat. That's not what worship is. Worship is actually deeply constructive. What I've been trying to suggest is that worship is a rehearsal of the music of reality. Music is a rehearsal of the music of reality. You want to live in reality? Be a worshiper. You want to get in touch with what's really going on in the world and be a part of that? Be a worshiper. Because God made the world, he made human life in particular, as I've said, to resound, to reverberate, with what I've called the music of God's presence and God's purposes. And I just think about that for a minute. God is moving in his creation. He is present in all creation. And he has purposes for all creation. And that's the big plan. What God has planned is the big plan. That's what's going to happen in creation. No matter what opposition stands against him. And that's music. God spoke, he sang, you could say, the cosmos into being with all of his plans for it. And those plans have not changed and that music is still there. That's the deep music of reality. And God is restoring that music in Christ Jesus. And worship is rehearsing that music. You know, you walk around the world, you hear people making a lot of noise. Many times you watch people's lives, you realize they don't understand their instrument. They don't seem to understand very much about the music at all. And you meet other people, too. You meet sometimes incredibly skilled players. They're not worshipers, but they have actually learned a lot of skill in playing the music of reality. They're just missing pages. But we want to learn to play all of the music. And worship is tracing again and again in our worship services. What we are doing is we are tracing and rehearsing together again and again the arc of God's melody. There's a certain storyline to the music of God, and we've talked about the pieces of that melody arc. It all begins with God's call. God calls creation into existence. God calls people out of darkness and sin and death back to himself. And then he brings us in and he secondly cleanses us, right? Because we're sinners. We need to be washed. And the first offering we've talked about in this text is the sin offering that cleanses the worshiper. But God moves on from cleansing us then to, it's a big word, God consecrates us. What do I mean by that? It's pictured in the burnt offering. The word of God is we're now cleansed and we're standing before him. He starts talking to us and his word starts getting into our business 
and kind of chopping things up and moving things around and washing and transforming because God wants our entire lives to be changed where we share his character and we share his mission. We're like totally sold out to this God who made us and saved us. We're like him. Our character is like his. Our mission is his mission. That's consecration. That's devotion. The burnt offering, the entire animal is consumed in this fiery cloud. Because what God does when he takes a life and he cleanses us from our sin is he starts making our entire lives whole. He starts healing everything, making us 100% well again. That's the burnt offering, secondly. So calling, cleansing, consecration. And then today, we come to the final offering of the three in the text, sin offering, burnt offering. Today, peace offerings in verse 18. And I want to talk a little, about, a little bit about the peace offering and the communion fourth C word, calling, cleansing, consecration, communion, the communion that is pictured here. And I want to begin by just talking very briefly about the direction that we see in the details, the direction in the details here. I've told you guys, you know, Leviticus is Leviticus. It's a tough book of the Bible, a lot of details, a lot of animals, a lot of blood, a lot of grisly gore. But you see in the peace offerings, the the, the characteristic feature of the peace offering, unlike the sin offering that was actually the blood was poured out at the base of the altar, as far away from God as you can get. The animal's flesh was taken outside the camp and burned. It was like thrown out of God's holy presence. That's a sin offering. And then the burnt offering, the entire thing becomes part of God's glory cloud. In the peace offerings, the, the characteristic feature is that this is actually a meal shared by God and by the worshiper. If you look back in chapter 3, and you see it, uh, back in chapter 3, God took part of the animal. You'll notice only part of the animal was burned on the altar, And God's fire consumes, you can think of it as eats, part of the animal. But if you look in chapter 7, verse 15, you discover that part of the peace offering is eaten by the worshiper. Now, this is very interesting. This is the only offering of which this is true. God gets part of it, and we get part of it. And we're actually sharing a meal together. Michael Morales describes it this way. He says, the the liturgy, Israel's liturgy, would conclude with a peace offering in which the worshiper feasted upon a sacred meal with family and friends in God's presence. Now, what I'd like you to notice in these details, there's this common meal. That's like, that's, that's, the direction I want you to notice is that this is the climax of the music. This is what it's all moving toward. The calling and the cleansing is so we can come into God's presence and be consecrated. We can become like him in his character. We can join him in his mission. But God's purpose in calling, cleansing, consecrating us is because God wants to fellowship with us. He wants, he wants to know you and he wants you to know him. He wants to delight in you and he wants you to delight in him. This isn't just sharing God's mission. It's not showing up, you know, kind of saluting your commander, getting your marching orders, and going off into the world to do what God tells you to do. It's not just sharing God's mission. God wants you to have with him, beloved, the kind of lively, intimate fellowship that family and friends enjoy around a table. I love feasts. I love parties. I love times when families and friends gather together and they eat well and they drink well and they celebrate together. God wants you to have that. That's where it's all going. That's God's purpose. Morales, again, he describes it this way. Atonement, atonement's just a big word that means the taking away of our sin. So the journey of sacrifice teaches here. 
Atonement, the sin offering, leads to sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like God. That's the burnt offering. Atonement, the journey of sacrifice teaches, leads to sanctification. But then notice, sanctification grows into joyous communion. We are God's friends. We are God's family. We are his fellow workers in the world. He brings us into his very presence. Have you ever thought about the fact that as surely as Jesus belongs in God's presence, you belong. This is your home. Being with God is like your living room. You can kind of like relax here and be at peace and enjoy this as much as Jesus himself because God has, God has called, cleansed, consecrated you, and now he wants to commune with you. And in the fiery glory of God that would otherwise consume us, in this, in this moment of just astonishing intimacy, we get to eat and drink with God. We get to share his life. We're in his home. We're in his life. That's what God was after all along. I want to be with my people, and I want to commune with them. I want to celebrate with them. I want to enjoy each other in that intimacy of the meal. That's the direction and the details. That's where worship is going. That's the climax of the music. Now, what I want to do for the next few minutes is I just want, we've heard that music. I want to let that the deep music of this meal just sound in our ears. And I want to actually talk for a few minutes about some resonances of that music in the meal, some resonances of that music with contemporary life. Because I said to you that worship is the music of reality. As you, as you, are, as you are learning how to live as a called person, a cleansed person, a consecrated person, a communing person who eats and drinks with God, that is, that's what the world's supposed to look like. That's supposed to shape life. So I want to talk about how this peace offering, this meal with God, this intimate, joyful, celebratory festive festival that we get to enjoy with God, how that is to, needs to resonate in contemporary life. And what I want to talk about is I want to just think together about communion, pictured in this meal, communion as the source of joy and communion as the goal of work. And just let this music in this meal just kind of resonate with our contemporary lives. First of all, communion as a source of joy. I really want to just meditate on this for a minute together. To help us with that, I'm going to imagine something. Suppose that this summer, it's a hot July Saturday afternoon, and I get a hold of a bunch of you guys in my kind of band of brothers at Trinity, and I, I, I let you guys know I've got a two-hour, you know, project on my back hedgerow. I need to rip out some stuff and put in some stuff, and I've got, you know, a couple of hours on Saturday afternoon. I'd like you guys to come over and join me, and uh, maybe you guys could just give me some help, and we can do this together. So, you guys come on over, and, you know, we're out there in the yard, and we get started around 2 o'clock, and, you know, we kind of work, and you guys are, as always, awesome, and we get a lot done, and 4 o'clock rolls around, and I say, okay, guys, thanks very much. Here's 50 bucks a piece. Appreciate the help. See ya. 4 o'clock. Off you go. Now, I know our church culture well enough to know. I mean, some of you guys might be lame enough. You just take the money and run. But I know most of you would actually have a very different reaction to that. Most of you guys would feel like, man, Ben really missed an opportunity here for joy. This could have been even more fun. Because there's my pool shimmering in the summer sun. And you know I've got drinks in my cooler somewhere. And you just wonder to yourself, like, why, after two hours of sweating together and having a good time, working hard, doing meaningful work, why wouldn't we just hang out by the pool for an hour, you know? And why wouldn't we just... 
Why wouldn't we just have a little extra time to, to get beyond the work, as meaningful as that was, and actually experience some joy together? Because you all know, if, and I know you guys well, and you know me well, if we had worked for a couple of hours in my hot backyard, and then we you know, broke out the drinks and some cigars, and there's the pool, you know there would be an eruption of joy. It would be a loud, guy-noisy, splashy time. And we would suddenly not just be getting something done together, we would be enjoying each other's company for its own sake. Not because of the project, just because it's just good to enjoy each other's company. Now, I want to ask you something. What causes that eruption of joy? And I ask because, is it the pool? Is it the cooler full of drinks? You guys have all had the experience, and so have I, of getting involved in leisure activities. Now, this is not work. It's a leisure activity. Some of you have even gone to parties. I mean, places where there's lots of people, lots of the trappings of fun, lots of noise, and you have been at these kind of leisure, supposedly supposed to be festive activities, and you've come away bored and restless and joyless. You've all had that experience. I mean, a good party is a good party. A lousy party is a lousy party, no matter how much pool and other stuff you got. It seems when you think about joy, that eruption of joy, that to take joy away from a party, you kind of have to bring something to the party. What is that something we bring that produces that eruption of joy when we finally can just be together for the, for the fun of it? There's a kind of expectancy behind that in, in that thing that leads to joy. I mean, I'm already experiencing joy thinking about our summer feasts. I, I enjoy them so much, and I'm already looking forward to that time together. But if you really think about that sense of expectancy, you know, I'm really looking forward to hanging out in my backyard this summer with all of you and having one of our feasts. It's going to bring joy. But if you think about the expectancy I have, that expectancy expresses something even deeper. And nobody that I know of has captured this as well as the German, theolo- uh, German philosopher, uh, Joseph Pieper, I will never forget where I was sitting in the parking lot outside Katie's dance studio when I read this chapter on my sabbatical a number, number of years ago. Listen to what he says. No one can rejoice for joy's sake alone. Nobody can rejoice for joy's sake alone. I'm going to go be joyful. The reason for joy, although it may be encountered in a thousand concrete forms, is always the same. The reason for joy is always the same, possessing or receiving what one loves. Joy is an expression of love. One who loves nothing and nobody cannot possibly rejoice no matter how desperately he craves joy. One who loves nothing and nobody cannot possibly rejoice no matter how desperately he craves joy. You see, what I'm looking forward to What we'd all be looking forward to if we were working in my yard waiting to get in the pool. What I'm looking forward to about the feast. What I'm looking forward to in a few minutes when we're done here and we just hang out in the lobby. I'm looking forward to receiving that part of you that I get to receive only when we're not all working. When we're just together because it's just good to be together. When we play together. I receive part of you. I don't receive any other time. And that love is what produces expectancy and it's what produces joy. But it's actually even deeper than that. Because Pieper goes on to make another connection that is so profound. If you think about the love, the delight that fuels that kind of joy, that love involves a very deep value judgment. 
This is what I mean. I can illustrate it with a birth. Do you guys celebrate births? Isn't a baby coming into the world a joyful thing? And you say to yourself, well, of course it's joyful because you expect, you know, to meet this new little person as a parent, as family and friends. You're already feeling such love for this little one you haven't even met. And when he or she arrives, there's just all this, you know, deep, unbelievable, almost primal affection. And that affection produces this eruption of joy. But Pieper says, he asks a very probing question. Can you really celebrate a new life unless it's good to exist? And existence is good? You see, there are a lot of people that actually, at a deep philosophical level, believe that existence is absurd, that life is meaningless, that people don't have any real God-given value because there's no God. There's just sort of like, you know, cosmic dust doing its thing. And Pieper says, we celebrate life because life is good. We have judged, we've made a value judgment that existing is a good thing. It's not just meh, it's good. And so Pieper goes on to say that the love that's deep down beneath our joy, when you think about that love, whether it's welcoming a new little life into the world or looking forward to a time with friends you love, way down in the roots of that joy is this affirmation that the world is essentially good. Beneath all the wrongs and the evils and the broken stuff, it is fundamentally good to be, good to exist. Life is something inherently good. It was actually Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people, who said, to have joy in anything, one must approve everything. To have joy in anything, one must approve the whole, everything. Or as Pieper puts it, man cannot have the experience of receiving what is loved unless the world and existence as a whole represents something good and therefore beloved to him. And that all flows out of understanding that the world really is very good because God made it. It is his handiwork. But we find ourselves now, beloved, in a time in which people and things are not inherently good. People and things do not have worth and purpose given by their maker. People are not inherently worth our love. Things are not inherently good because they're created. They're not inherently good. They're only instrumentally good. They're instruments that may produce something that we want. Insofar as people and things in my life serve my purposes, serve our purposes, as far as they're instruments to some end we have in view, you know, they're, they're good, you know, to serve that purpose. They don't, they don't have inherent, intrinsic value, worth, and goodness because we don't believe in creation anymore. And so the people and things in life, for so many people without God, these people and these things, they don't come to us as gifts to be discovered and opened up and loved because they're from God whose goodness is reflected in them. Rather, the people and things in our life, so much in our culture now, they are just potentially useful commodities, potentially useful resources. They might help us get somewhere. They might help us accomplish something. They might serve some end. But they don't, if you don't have that understanding of God's creation, can they really can you affirm that the whole of creation is good 
and therefore receive and love this particular gift, which is why I think in a society obsessed with happiness, we surely don't see an eruption of joy. The best loves, the best joys come not when I need you to help clear off my hedgerow, not when we're mutually serving some transactional purpose. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. That it, the best loves and joys come not when we're, this is not a transactional kind of relationship, but rather we are simply loving the gift of one another in our very being. When I see you and I love the good of who you just are, that's the highest love, the highest joy. So communion as the source of joy. And it's reflected in this meal. That's what God wants with us. But there's a second thing, and we've already sort of touched on it, and that is communion as the goal of work. Communion as the goal of work. Man, do we need to hear this in the 21st century. We've got to think about this as God's people. To affirm that human beings are not just instrumentally useful, you know, they're not just tools to get to something else. They're not just stepping stones. They're not just instrumentally useful. They are inherently valuable. They're wonderful creations. To affirm that and to have that affirmation of the goodness of what God has made just erupt in joy, you can, if you think about it, that already has such massive implications for how we think about work. How we think about the tasks that occupy us every day individually and collectively, how we think about the tools we use to accomplish those tasks. When you think about the tasks and the tools of life, it makes an enormous difference whether you think that people are just instrumentally useful to you or whether they are inherently valuable and wonderful creations of God. Let's think about why I would say that. Because if you think about God's work, God's work is very interesting in that his work of creation always, in the end, arrived at what? God's work moves to what we call what? Y'all are either asleep or have no idea what I'm talking about. God's work, when it's finished, what, where, do we, where does it arrive? What's the conclusion? It's the Sabbath. And what is God doing when he's arrived at the Sabbath? What's he looking out over creation and saying? God looked on everything he had made. He had worked. And what does he say? It's very good. And you can see the same thing in God's work of grace. God's calling, cleansing, consecrating people, working in our lives, saving us from sin and death. The work of God's grace always lands in the end in this feast. God's moving to the feast. Creation moves to the Sabbath and its delight. Work of grace moves to a feast. And what I want us to think about is that work that imitates God, work that sees the world the way God sees the world, the work itself is going to treat the world as God's good gift. I mean, if you really believe that you're working in God's workshop with God's stuff that he made, already, even just in your working, it's gonna, there's going to be a love that, that is part of your work. You, you know, you're working with people. These are, these are, you're loving people. You're working with the stuff of the world. You, you, you love this. There, there's love in the work itself. But what you will also find as your work imitates God's is your work is going to move to thankful celebrating with other people. God was so stern about this with his people in Israel. You must Sabbath. You must not keep working all the time. You must not add another 30 hours to your work week and not Sabbath. You shall keep the Sabbath of the Lord your God. He was very, very firm about this. 
You want to be my people, a holy people? Your work moves to that stopping and just thankfully celebrating with, before the face of God with his people. You see that again and again in Torah. And so I want to offer just a couple of pastoral observations here, still letting this music resonate with our contemporary life. A couple of pastoral observations about work. We need to assess the damage the damage that has been caused by two things in our contemporary world with respect to our work. If communion for God is the goal of work, you work in order to commune, we need to assess the damage in our lives of two things very quickly. The first thing that has damaged us more than we realize is working in mass production, distribution, and consumption. Let me say that again. There is a lot of damage in your life and my life because many of us are working in mass production, distribution, and consumption. The fact that most of our society now runs on systems of mass production. You might work from home for a remote company, but almost none of you are working on land in your neighborhood. You're not working in a shop in your neighborhood. You are living in a world that is now dominated by systems of mass production. And what that means is that most of us, if not all of us now, quote unquote, listen to the language, go to work. You don't even think about that when you say it, I'm going to work. That is not obvious historically. But you do go to work. Even if it's just through a computer portal, you go away to work. And this is what that means. It means you no longer work with those you live with. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Almost none of you work with those you live with. You don't work with the people you live with. And what that means more and more is, in our society, you don't commune with the people you work with or the people you live with. This is what I mean. If you're going to take a Sabbath, it would surely be away from your coworkers. You would surely leave your job to go Sabbath, right? You wouldn't have Sabbath with your coworkers because there's this work-life balance because they're not the same anymore. There's work and then there's life. You go back to life for Sabbath. You wouldn't Sabbath with your coworkers. You wouldn't commune with them in that sabbatical way. But what's very interesting, when you come back to your so-called life, exhausted from your work week, because our daily labor that occupies most of our time is away from our neighbors, because the, the labor of our daily lives is away from our neighbors, it's actually kind of artificial then to invite your neighbors to share the fruit of your labor that you haven't shared with them. It's not at all obvious that you would Sabbath with your neighbors either because if you don't work together, why should you Sabbath together? You'd have to almost artificially make that happen. So one thing that's damaged us more than we realize is working in mass production, distribution, and consumption systems. But there's a second thing that's damaged us that has flowed from this We've been deeply damaged by artificial escapes from work and life. Now, given the separation of your work from your life, it's pretty natural, pretty normal that you'd want to escape your work because who wants to spend their whole life working? I want to get back to my life. How many times have I heard people say, I have no life. All I do is work. Okay, well, the system that we're working in has produced that kind of tension. But obviously, you want to get away from your work to go back to your life 
So escaping work makes a ton of sense in the way that we now live, but here's kind of the sickening reality. You don't share, as I've already said, you don't share your work, and you really don't share much Sabbath with those that you live with back in your life. You're not laboring together and then Sabbathing together, sharing a common harvest time, sharing you know, common seasons and rhythms of community life. You don't share work or Sabbath back in your life with those you actually live with. And here's the thing, since life without Sabbath, life without communion in labor, we don't work together and commune in our labor. Life without communion and rejoicing, we don't commune in Sabbath together either. But if you escape your work to go back to your life and you discover in your life you don't have real communion of work or real communion of rejoicing and Sabbath here, your life is going to be insufferably boring to you. You escape work to go back to your life, but your life doesn't have communion either. You're not working alongside of the people you live with. You're not Sabbathing along with the people you live with. And without those things, without that communion, people are so bored with their lives, and so they seek escape from their life as well. They don't spend their weekends Sabbathing. They spend their weekends numbing out. And, of course, our culture provides what are called these infinity pools, endless shows links to click on, TikTok videos, you name it. These infinity pools in which you can just lose yourself. And watching this show or scrolling that latest thing on the internet or whatever it might be, you get a false sense of being alive, of having some community, being with others. You might even get a kind of satisfying sense of being influential, maybe having some adventure, growing in some competency, all in these escape realms, those very things, vitality, community, influence, adventure, competency, that God intended to be enjoyed in working and Sabbathing together. But we don't. We don't. And that world's not going to change. That is the world we now live in. And the question is, what is to be done in a world that is so starved for communion? How do you bring this meal, how do you bring the peace offering into contemporary life? I'm going to wrap up with this. Just two quick places to start. Some of this we're doing, some of this we need to do more. Number one, can I really encourage you guys, and you do this well, keep after it. Worship until you worship. Someone once said, pray till you pray. Worship until you worship. This is what I mean. I hate, I hate, as a pastor, walking into worship services where I can't tell if these people actually believe this stuff. Worship until you worship. Worship until the reality of God and his works summons from your innermost being love for him that erupts in joy. Our Lord's Supper celebrations, when we finally get to the meal and break bread and drink wine in the presence of God, should be festive occasions. Worship until you worship. Pieper said about just one work of God, the incarnation of Christ, God's taking flesh. He said, if the incarnation of God is no longer understood as an event that directly concerns the present lives of men, it's real, then it becomes impossible, even absurd, to celebrate Christmas festively. What is left of the festival if the underlying reality does not summon forth our love because it's real anymore? Worship until you worship. Our worship services should be Not hype, but should be full of joy, called forth by love. The second way I think we can start to work on bringing the peace offering meal into our contemporary life 
And I, here I don't know. Here I don't know if we'll do it. I don't know. Because it would require change I'm not sure most of us are really ready for. We need to relearn the arts of making and savoring together. Relearn the arts, because they are arts, of making and savoring together. You know, in a world where people are so instrumentalized, they're so politicized, they are used as pawns on, in, you know, in political agendas, and people feel this more and more. They're just in these mass movements of stuff in society, and, and I don't know if we even realize in the church how revolutionary in our time simple hospitality is. Just getting together to make a meal and savor a meal together. I actually have come to believe that simple hospitality, getting together and making something and savoring something together, maybe not just food, other things, I think that may be quite literally one of the weapons of our warfare that God will use in our time to overcome evil with good and to overcome the despair of our generation with constructive hope. I'll close with this quote from the brilliant thinker Ivan Illich. Listen to what he said. This was back, I think, in 1996. So much more true now in 2021. And think about the meal, the communion with God, the peace offering. He said, if I had to choose one word to which hope can be tied, it's hospitality. A practice of hospitality recovering threshold, table, patience, listening. Threshold, table, patience, listening. And from there, generating seedbeds for virtue and friendship on the one hand. On the other hand, radiating out, radiating out for possible community, for rebirth of community. I've begged you guys for years to be hospitable. It might not sound like the thing that's going to most solve the problem you're obsessing about in the news. That is what the church needs. That is what the church needs hospitality. That's a constructive vision. Bring the peace offering into the world. And Father, we pray that you will give us joy as we're about to eat at your table. Give us joy in the meal. Here, we pray for joy in our worship week after week. We pray that that, the spirit of the peace offering will fill our lives and that you will make us a savor of Christ's own hospitality in our age. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.